because, uh, as per usual in the gospel according to John, there are these large narrative blocks. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, what we're about to do is we're just going to dive right into this bad mamma jamma. Are you ready for this? Okay. So I just invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. We stand uh, as a means to say that God's word is worth responding to, that it's not just something for intellectual consideration, but it's something to move our bodies. And so we stand um, to say, Jesus, you are worthy to gain a hearing. You have gained a hearing with us. And so here is God's word, John 3, 1 to 21. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. And so it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are the teacher of Israel, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world, or in this way God loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. So in, in storytelling, so I'm told, there's a thing called a hook. And a hook is something like a, a key moment or a scene or an experience that's intended specifically to captivate an audience. If you watch the YouTubes, um, the hook will happen right at the beginning. The reason is, is because they're trying to, get this, hook your attention. And so the hook is placed right there at the beginning and it is to draw you in. Uh, but if you think back to the beginning of the gospel according to John, John also has a hook. His hook sounds like this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
What John just did is he just dropped into the middle of human history a line that told everyone's story. In the beginning, those are the words that start the Jewish scriptures. And then he starts talking about the word as God. Well, the word is this Greek word logos, which is like the foundation of reason and logic. It's the thing beneath the thing. In other words, John is saying, if you have a story, it's being told in the living word who was God and is with God. That, that my friends, is a hook. And in some sense, this is like, this is the story, the gospel of John is the story of the cosmic breaking into the common to confront your story and my story with God's own story. This is the cosmic breaking into the common. That's a hook, but it's, it's more than there. And sometimes we cast this negatively because we think, oh, well, that's a little clake bitty. Like that, that's just like an inflammatory title or like um, we want to know who Brad Pitt's dating again. It's like it feels like that. It's like, ooh, but every so often there is substance behind a hook. And to my mind, that is true in John's gospel. Because in scene after scene, I mean, just to be clear, we're only in chapter three. And this thing is fire. Like in scene after scene, what we see is that the cosmic comes crashing into the common and it's unexpected. It's no name fishermen being called out of obscurity on the margins to the center of religious and community life with Jesus, their rabbi. It's shame being transformed into joy. That is the whole story of water being turned into wine. It's moments like this. It's tables overturned in the temple for justice sake. It is the cosmic crashing into the common. It's heaven colliding with earth. This is the substance behind the hook. But um, just consider the nature of a collision with me, if you will. Has anybody ever been in a car crash? Uh, yeah, so there's, I like saw some, like, no, yeah. Um, as a younger, the, the younger version of me, um, I was a fierce uh, backer-upper. <laughs> In other words, I would not use my rear view mirrors and I um, had a number of uh, collisions where somebody was driving, usually in a parking lot, the music's loud, there's other people in the car and poof. I don't want you to think about that collision because there's you know, negative memories associated with it. Let's, let's take something else, just make a fist if you will. Okay, this isn't gonna be about like violence or anything, just stay with me. Uh, just imagine a rock hitting water and that rock is about the size of your fist. Now, presuming you're not in the Midwest in winter um, and you're throwing this rock into the water, therefore it's not frozen, what will happen to the water? Yeah, the water's gonna splash. You can stop making a fist now. Um, so the water, the, the water is going to splash and then wave after wave will be set out. And depending on the size of that body of water, will kind of determine how fierce the waves are and how high you throw the rock up and how big your fist is. All of that comes to bear on what will happen with that splash. See, when Jesus arrives on the scene, his impact, it reverberates almost out immediately. And this is how John records Jesus' impact, like the cosmic colliding with the common. This is at, right before our teaching text in John 2, 23, we read this. Now, while he, that is Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing. 
and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he didn't need any testimony about mankind because he knew what was in each person. Take notice of what draws the attention of the many. It's the signs. And what's interesting is that signs, these are objects that are designed specifically to point beyond themselves. They become the thing that attract people. It's, it's the sign, not the thing that people are interested in. And the signs are actually a place of, of fragile trust because the sign can only do so much. It can only point to the thing to which it is indicating. It's not the thing. So the signs are almost distracting, but the many, they turn to Jesus. And John actually has this play of, of words. The New Testament is originally written in Greek, and so what the, the text will read like this. While Jesus was in Jerusalem, many people saw the signs he was performing and they pisteoed in him. But when Jesus was there, he would not pisteo himself to them. So the people pisteoed Jesus, but Jesus did not pisteo the people. In other words, Jesus knew what was in them. Jesus knew what was in all men. That's the end of chapter two. Then we pick up in our teaching text, now there was a man, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling counselor, and he came to Jesus at night. See, the many, they want to like ride the sine wave, and yet we're invited here by John before any interaction unfolds with Nicodemus to, to wonder, like, what does this guy desire? What does this man desire? There's uh, this, like, John has, like, set us up to be skeptical, to be a little cautious about what the man might want. And John goes on. He says he's a Pharisee, a member of the Jewish ruling council. And um, if you're a little rusty on your ancient Near Eastern history or, you know, like your, I don't know, Jewish cast and characters, the Pharisees, for all intents and purposes, they are the elite religious folk of the day. You can think of the Pharisees like the evangelicals, if that's a, maybe a gross placeholder, but kind of true. See, the Pharisees were the ones who identified themselves with God. They're the ones who are saying, we relate to God as king. And then they strain their whole life to show true devotion. They tithe the appropriate amount of mint and cumin. They prayed in public places. They made sure that people knew the story of their devotion to Yahweh. And then they would doggedly keep the Sabbath. And they would rebuke anybody who like broke the bounds of religious observance. They strained to show their devotion. Jesus, by contrast, was common. He's a craftsman from the Galilee of all places. Like this is up, if there's a small town in Iowa, which is I guess like most of Iowa, yeah, um, it's like the sticks. Jesus is from whatever small town you just thought of. Yeah, that's like the place where Jesus is from. And as far as we can tell, Jesus holds no pedigree. There's no prestigious accolades. There's no like synagogue backing his ministry. In fact, it's women who bankroll Jesus's ministry. Come on now. And Jesus essentially is a common person with nothing to offer. But Nicodemus, he sees something in Jesus and he comes to him and listen to his opening line to Jesus, Rabbi, We'll touch on that in a moment. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with them. So the chief representative of Israel's religious elite, 
Nicodemus, he kind of tips his cap to Jesus. He calls him a rabbi, which sets Nicodemus on the same footing with Jesus. He says, well, we're, we're essentially, we're colleagues, we're peers, we're in the same game. He recognizes Jesus. And to these flattering words, Jesus then turns back with this response, uh, very truly or truly, truly, I say to you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Now, I have no idea what kind of tone or what this little interaction is with Jesus, but just when Nicodemus tries to like wield the weight of his group's status, Jesus says, you all must be born again. Now, I didn't grow up in churchianity, but I knew what being born again was, usually with a negative connotation. It would be this person, they are a born again Christian. I didn't really know what that meant, uh, and I, I'm still trying to figure this out, by the way. Uh, but, but there's this little turn of phrase that we have come to be so familiar with. And so I just want to linger here for a moment longer because the word that captures th that phrase, born again, again in the Greek, it's this word anothen. Give that a try. Anothen. Unomas. Anothen. Uh, your auto, if you, when you autocorrect it, it, like when the computer does it, it tries to connect it like uh, to another. Very annoying after a while. Anothen, it, it simply means from above, but it can also mean again. And so the curiosity is, does Nicodemus think Jesus is saying that he has to be born again? Or is Jesus talking about being born from above? Well, I think we have a little context uh, that'll help us because Jesus will take up the same term, Anothan, later in chapter 19 when he says to Pontius Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you Anothan. Or elsewhere in the Gospels, like the, like the Gospel according to Matthew, he records Jesus' crucifixion scene. And when he describes the veil, the veil that holds the Holy of Holies and the presence of God back from the rest of the temple and the temple courts, he says it is torn anothen, that is from above, top to bottom. In other words, to experience, let alone witness the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the place where God's will is done 24-7, 365 on earth as it is in heaven, to even see the kingdom of God, you must be born anothen. You need more than your religious devotion. You need more than your good works. You need to be born anothen. And where Nicodemus aims to flatter Jesus by calling him rabbi, even confessing that God had to be the generative source of Jesus' work, Jesus essentially says, hey, uh, you like need to get a life. L literally, you need to get a new life. And I could be reading this wrong, but it seems to me that by responding like this, Jesus is making it abundantly clear that he's not interested in playing any games. He's not there to politic. He is here to be about his father's business because he has nothing to gain in proximity to the Pharisees. See, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are anothen, unless they are born from above. And what happens next between Jesus and Nicodemus is a little, cheeky, a little cheeky, but it's stunning nevertheless. In verse four, we, we read this. How can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their, into their mother's womb. And it, like when you read the Bible, it's okay to laugh. In fact, I would encourage it. It actually makes the Bible quite enjoyable when we do this. So that, by the way, is funny. Okay, so there you go. That's 
There you go, a little chuckle. And the truth is, for me, like we've heard this story and retellings of the story in so many ways that we are like strained for it to mean anything to us. It practically lulls us to sleep. But pay attention because this is actually for us, for you and for me. And just listen how William Barclay, a commentator on the gospel according to John, he reimagines Nicodemus' question like this. He says, you talk about being born anew. You talk about this radical fundamental change which is so necessary, but in my experience, it is impossible. There's nothing I would like more. But you might as well tell me, a full-grown man, to enter into my mother's womb and be born all over again. Like, you can almost hear the frustration. And then, I mean, it really can feel like we're nothing but the sum of our yesterdays, as Leon Marcus will say. But in a phrase, in a word, Jesus undercuts pedigree in accolades, in status. In a phrase, Jesus invites Nicodemus to see himself as the type of person for whom new life really can break out in the middle of the old. And in fact, it must be that way. See, it's not just that Jesus is speaking cryptically like rabbi to rabbi. No, like he is speaking in a way that Nicodemus ought to be able to understand him, which means it will take a little bit of work, a little bit of digging for us to attend to what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. And so remember this, this is the Passover. Now, what I know is, I'm pretty sure no one's Jewish in here, like no one grew up keeping Seder or all those things. And so what we easily forget or perhaps never even knew in the first place is that um, Passover is the festival squarely situated in the Exodus account. It is the moment where the people are released from slavery to freedom and consistently when you read the Exodus account, you're encountering birth themes. Moses is put into this little ark, this little like um, raft in the river because his mother, like all the children are being persecuted, so he is saved through that. It's this, and then, a, and then a, a midwife comes through this royal Egyptian princess and like she takes in Moses, but then he's cared for by his mom. There's all of this birth imagery that is just littered through Exodus. And then what you get is this poignant image of a doorway covered in blood. I've had the great fortune of seeing uh, two humans come into the world, and let me just say, they don't come out clean. Like, none of us entered the world pristine. <laughs> it's rather graphic. And that's not my intention to be graphic in this, but Exodus, especially that Passover meal where blood is covering a doorway, that is saying that there is a birth that took place there for a whole people. And now Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, the one who stands in some sense as the representative of the religious elite in Israel, a new birth is needed, a new exodus is needed. In fact, it's required. And all Nicodemus can muster is like, how? Do you expect us to go all the way back? Like, we're not to turn back to Egypt and go into, like, how is this going to take place? And to get his point across, Jesus goes on in verse five. Go there with me. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell, just pause right here. Anytime your boy Jesus is coming with, like, a truly I say to you, 
listen up. But if he doubles down on the truth, we would do well to, like, I don't know, sit with some curiosity. Truly, truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. So right here, Jesus is like setting side by side to be born from above and being born of water and spirit. And he goes on in verse six to unpack all of this. He says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised by me saying you must be born an oathen. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. And so it is with everyone born of the spirit. See, for you and me living in 2023, talk about water and spirit and the wind going wherever it will and all of this, I imagine it further complicates this whole message. But again, if you're a first century Bible scholar, perhaps the teacher of Israel, like, which is the man to whom Jesus is speaking, then talk about water and spirit is like picking up on the theme of your very story. It's picking up on God's story of restoration among the people. See, there were these folks that rose up among the people called prophets. And the prophets were the people who would speak God's word to God's people, generally to call them back to covenant faithfulness. Often the, the, the scriptures talk about the relationship between God and the people of Israel as a father to a son or a husband to a wife. And that's this image of like, you have agreed, you said yes, but you have turned away. And so the prophets would come on the scene to call the people back to be faithful to the one they pledged themselves to, namely to Yahweh. Isaiah will come on the scene and he'll, he'll start talking about the need for a new heart to well up in us and that like the people of Israel, this is in Isaiah 46, their hearts are like dry ground and God is gonna pour out water on that parched ground. But Ezekiel, man, Ezekiel picks up on this theme, something fierce. And this is what we see in Ezekiel 36. He says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you have to know, Ezekiel was destined to be a priest. So he's talking like a priest, the sprinkling of water, and you will be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. Do you hear it, church? I mean, Ezekiel's just coming with it. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And if that's not good enough, like you just turn the page and Ezekiel is like caught up in the spirit, at, you know, as you are. And there God brings him to this place. It's a valley littered with death. Like decay, it's past the point of decay. It is dry bones. This is in Ezekiel 37. And in this place marked by death, God commands Ezekiel to prophesy, to speak God's word to the death and this is what we hear in verse nine. Prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come, breathe, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. See the whole point is that flesh gives birth to flesh, that spirit gives birth to spirit. 
Later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul will say to a community, he'll say, do you think that you can continue in the flesh what began in the spirit? Like, simply say it, like, flesh is incompatible with spirit. The spirit will not evolve from the flesh. You can't just like plug spiritual into your Twitter bio or like, I don't know, practice yoga with a little bit more oomph and then all of a sudden think that like the, like the divine life will awaken in you. No, no, no. It's like the wind that blows where it will and you don't know. I love how uh, Professor uh, Daryl Johnson, I like how he kind of confronts this whole notion of spirituality and he says this, the only hope for our churches, our city, our states, and really the world is a spiritual revolution, a radical change in human nature from above, affected by the spirit of God. Flesh, be it east or west, liberal or conservative, can never pull off the peace and justice, the freedom and healing of the kingdom of God, but the spirit of God can. It's like week in and week out, we pray this prayer around here. Maybe you've heard me say it. It's the three simple words. It's come Holy Spirit. And maybe you've found yourself wondering like, why do you say that? Like, don't you know the Spirit is already here? We're, we're two or three are gathered in Jesus' name. He's present there with us. What, are you trying to like cajole the Spirit to move here or something like that? No, like I don't think that we're like whipping up the spirit of God or trying to like get ourselves hyped for Jesus or anything like that. We, we, we pray come Holy Spirit because in some sense we wanna participate with what God is already doing, but we also pray come Holy Spirit because there is a fundamental gap between our ability and the reality of God. Like we need God's life. We need the life from above to make a holy collision with our life. And we have one word to describe life. But we would do well to like parse those things out. And the, the brilliant British scholar, your boy Clive Staples, he does this in a book called Mere Christianity. Now I'm about to read a very long quote and what I want you to do is I want you to lean in. If you need to situate, if you need to shift your cheeks underneath you and get ready, because folks, the juice is worth the squeeze here. So, are you ready? Okay. A statue has the shape of a man, but it is not alive. In the same way, man has the shape or likeness of God, but he has not got the kind of life God has. Everything God has made has some likeness to himself. Space is like him in its hugeness. Matter is like God in having energy, though, of course, physical energy is a different kind of thing from the power of God. The vegetable world is like him because it is alive and he is the living God. But life in this biological sense is not the same as the life there is in God. It is only a kind of symbol or shadow of it. When we come to the animals, we find other kinds of resemblance in addition to biological life. The intense activity and fertility of the insects, for example, is the first dim resemblance to the unceasing activity and the creativeness of God. In the higher mammals, we get the beginnings of instinctive affection. That is not the same thing as the love that exists in God, but it is like it. 
Rather, in the way that a picture drawn on a flat piece of paper can nevertheless be like a landscape. When we come to man or humanity, the highest of the animals, we get the completest resemblance of God to which we know. Now, and I love this little parenthetical thought from Lewis. There may be creatures in other worlds who are more like God than man, but we don't know about them. Man not only lives, but loves and reasons. Biological life reaches its highest known level in him. But what man or woman in his natural or her natural condition has not got is spiritual life, the higher and different sort of life that exists in God. We use the same word life for both. But if you thought that both must refer to the same sort of thing, that would be like thinking the greatness of space and the greatness of God were the same sort of greatness. In reality, the difference between biological life and spiritual life is so important that I am going to give them two distinct names. The biological sort, which comes to us through nature, and which, like everything else in nature, is always tending to run down and decay so that it can only be kept up by incessant subsidies from nature in the form of air, water, food, etc. That is bios. The spiritual life, which is in God from all eternity and which made the whole natural universe is zoe. Bios has, to be sure, a certain shadowy or symbolic resemblance to zoe, but only the sort of resemblance there is between a photo and a place or a statue and a man. A man who changed from having bios to having zoe would have gone through as big a change as a statue which changed from being carved stone to being a real man. This is the collision that we are hopeful for, a collision that would break our hearts of stone and give us a heart, not just merely a flesh, yes, but something that is pliable in God's hand, like from bios to zoe. We want that type of life to break in to the destructive patterns of sin that plague us, to the addiction, to the family drama that Lord knows needs healing. Like that's where we want zoe to break into, like to take our calloused hearts and make them pliable in God's love and according to his will. And this is no small thing. And let me just, as an aside, this isn't in the notes, and I know we're at 29 minutes, so I'll make it quick. This is just the beginning. Do you expect a child, when they're born, to go and, like, run a marathon? No, you don't. But let me tell you something. You often will expect a four-year-old, hypothetically, um, to like clean up after themselves. Or maybe, I don't know, just hypothetically again, like not to punch their brother in the face. I don't know. Like you would expect them to have, but no, 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 no. Like it's just the beginning. And God is a patient and loving father. And he is here to walk and journey with us, with Jesus present to us by the spirit. God does not just say, I'm going to generate life and then leave. God says, I'm going to generate and then sustain and attend to and care because that is the very nature of who I am. I am with you. Do you remember Christmas? I don't know. Do you? Yes, okay. The thing that we all get hyped on in Christmas is Emmanuel, God with us. Well, he's not gone anywhere. But, but I think that our attention has. Like our attention is strained 
It is strained, day in and day out, assaulted. And I think, how do you preach on John 3, freaking 16? Well, you say God is trying to bring something like life out of death. But I think Nicodemus asks the question many of us ask today, like, how can this be? How can a man of stone be made into a real man? Like, how can this be? Well, to my mind, this is the wonder, mystery, and dread of grace. See, grace is this wonderful thing because it feels too good to be true. It's like that time, Jesus will reflect, when Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness and when the people were afflicted with the serpent's sting, like they were literally sick and moving toward death, God invites Moses to do this strange thing, to gather bronze and then to put the symbol of death on this staff and raise it up and that whoever would look at this thing and have enough trust that that it could be their healing if they simply looked at it, it would release them from the sting of that death and they would be made well. Grace is, is wonderful like that. But it's also mysterious because it's like the wind. You don't know where it's going. You don't know when like an updraft is going to be like right in front of you. You don't know how the wind is going to go and with which force. And yeah, we have these models that can predict things and we create sails. But if you are on a body of water and you're saying the wind is going to come, I have all of the mechanisms and tools and techniques that when the wind blows, it's good. But if there's no wind there, your sail is stupid. So it's wonderful, it's mysterious. And in turn, there's a type of dread to grace because we can't generate it ourselves. I don't pretend to know the frustration that Nicodemus brought to Jesus. But Nicodemus is the teacher. He's like the reverend doctor theologian. He is the person, like, he's the most distinguished person. And Jesus says, do you not even know like, you're the teacher of Israel, but you don't even know. You cannot generate grace. We cannot anothen ourselves. But if you've only ever lived in a story where you have to hustle, where you have to get yours lest somebody else gets it, where, you, where it's a story of limited good, it is a story of lack, then, then the prospect of you having to generate something which is itself a free gift, that is like, that is not just anxiety provoking, that is itself a type of bondage. And if you're like, have a bent towards self-loathing, then there's always this plaguing question of like, have I done enough? Like maybe grace is what like gave the spark, but now I have to sustain it. There is a type of dread to this grace. But there's actually a better story. As Willard puts it, grace is not opposed to effort or participation. Grace is opposed to earning and pride. Like when John, the author of this gospel, turns and reflects on God's grace revealed in Jesus, he says it this way, for God so loved the world, or God demonstrates his love this way, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Like this isn't a bait and switch. This isn't just another hook. This is the actual substance to the whole thing. Because this is God's love. And God's love comes to the world. In the gospel according to John, the world is the system. And the, the things moving against God. In other words, you could say God loved his enemies in this way. That he would stand in the place of death so that life could come forth as they look upon him. To the world set to decay, to the world governed by flesh or bios, to that world the Father chose to direct his love. To you and to me, God has chosen from eternity to direct his love in and through the Son. And if this sounds like an old and dusty message, then maybe we are the ones who actually need to wake up to this. Because one of the great ironies of this scene is that the very people through whom God desired to demonstrate his love, they refused to recognize the love of God in the face of Jesus. When Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, he, he's weeping because they've missed the hour of visitation. See, around the country, there's like these things that people are calling revivals taking place or, or outpourings. And admittedly, I'm like a little bit more um, extroverted than a lot of uh, folks. And uh, therefore, I think I have this natural propensity to be a little bit more, I don't know, gregarious, you might say. Like, basically, I'm like here for the stuff, like the charismatic stuff. I'm like, that's a little weird. Let's go for it. And um, in these places, that's not the tone and timbre of these outpourings. It's something like peace. And to a generation, like a generation that has been crippled by anxiety and suicide and depression, there is like a peace that is flowing through. It is a different tonal quality. It's something like love that is captivating. It's something like Zoe breaking into the death of a generation. See, God came without fanfare. He came without pedigree or prestige. He came in some sense with controversy. Like he was born to a teenage girl who claimed the Holy Spirit was the baby's daddy. Like that's a weird line. And when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, he comes to him as a teacher, like the, the one who will enhance his understanding of God's work. And it's true in part, but only because Jesus is God's work in the world. Jesus is the son sent to demonstrate the intensity of God's love. And for Nicodemus, and I would say for you and for me, for all of us, like we need more than a teacher who will guide us into truth and give us like seven ways to intimacy with God. No, like we need life. We need actual intimacy. Because like those, like those Israelites who were wandering in the desert and they were sick and dying, we actually need a way to move from death to life. We need a way to turn from like the venom of greed and deceit and bitterness and the illusion of self-sufficiency that is crushing us. We need a new life, a new life generated by the Spirit. We need to be born anothen, like a holy collision. One of my favorite preachers, Pastor Susie Silk, when, when she talks about God drawing near, she describes how God's presence breaks the illusion that we're fine. Um, you probably don't know this, and I feel a little reluctant to share it, but underneath where you're sitting is, our, is a storage room. <laughs> um, 
And I just thought, wouldn't it be neat if the place where people come and gather in the name of Jesus week after week uh, could be like a little altar to God? That like his presence would radiate up through these stairs and like out into this whole place? What if like an obscure place hidden away could become a place where, where like seeds of hope and renewal would well up in this community? And the prayer that I often pray for you is that God would break the illusion that you're okay, that you've got your stuff together, and that you would allow the grace of God to confront your sin. But here's the thing, when God's presence shows up, it often exposes those places, the deep hidden recesses of our hearts, but it's in that place that God does not just expose and condemn, he joins and he pours out his mercy. And going on to close, John says this in verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whatever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. See, it seems to me that Jesus is well aware that following him comes with a cost. After all, it is the trajectory of Jesus's life and ministry that he will be hung on a Roman execution rack. Jesus will be lifted up. That language elsewhere is, is exclusively the language of royalty, to be lifted up, to be venerated, to be honored. Jesus is lifted up, but his place of exaltation is a cross. And it is the place where the fullness of our sin and shame goes to die. And then in the power of God, Jesus is raised from death to life, the type of life that extends beyond biological life to that Zoe type of life. See, there will, and likely you've experienced this cost like a cost when new life starts to break out in you because like that life starts to change our appetites. It slowly starts to draw us towards something and as we give ourselves over to that new type of life, it makes this distinction happen where all of a sudden our desires have shifted and our reputation, like we feel tension there but we like it, now our reputation is at risk and maybe even a promotion or relationships or social capital and friendships, these things, there is a cost to identifying with the life of Jesus and saying that is now my life in Christ. But it seems like that lie, that, that, that loss is actually worth the, the thing that you gain. And you know, I didn't finish that Lewis quote from earlier. I ended with this line, that a man who changed from having bios to having zoe would have gone through as big a change as a statue which changed from being a carved stone to being a real man. But he goes on and he says this, and listen to this. And this is precisely what Christianity is about. This world is a great sculptor shop. We are the statues, and there's a rumor going round the shop that some of us are someday going to come to life. I 
I think in, in some sense, like, I, I want, like, the Spirit of God to, like, rush in in a moment like that. But I don't, I have no idea how John 3 settles in your heart or your imagination. If you think, oh, well, that's for this person that I know. But let me just dare to say that perhaps that new life that God has on offer in Jesus is still on offer. And I'm not saying like you need to pray a prayer again or you need to mark this moment with distinction, but perhaps Jesus is inviting you and me to like receive what he's already given, to not complete in the flesh what began in the spirit, but to keep in step with the spirit, to attune our mind. You know, this is the season of Lent. Lent is a season where we willfully give up a good thing so we might join Jesus in suffering on the way to the cross. Easter is six weeks away. What if in this season we just accounted, we, we count the cost of the things that were like choking the life of Jesus out of us and we in Jesus' name put them to death so that true life might flow through us? I, I can only invite. You have to pick up the, and, and it's not even like, I can't muster these things for you. I can't want you to want these things. All I can do is say, like there is something like the sweetness of Jesus that is rising up in my heart and I want you to join. I'm not saying I have it figured out, but let me tell you what, there is like an altar growing up under you and there will be something like the presence of Jesus that comes for those who want it. Mm -hmm.